that's why some of the great classics of Bach and Mozart and Beethoven and Stravinsky and Liszt and Tchaikovsky can get played over and over without people getting really bored because they're that good. That's composer, pianist, and professor at the U of A, Daniel Asia, our guest on Heart of the Arts today, talking about his upcoming performance and 70th birthday celebration with Red Rocks Music Festival this September 9th and 10th. I'm Melissa Green. Welcome to another episode of Heart of the Arts. So your upcoming performance with Red Rocks Music Festival is a celebration, right? It is. (laughs) <laughs> They're helping me celebrate my 70th birthday. Well, congratulations. Um, Thank you. How does it feel to be in the classical music world today? Uh, the classical music world is pretty complicated. <laughs> I use that word frequently to describe all sorts of things. <laughs> uh, <but> yeah. That's... <laughs> it's very complicated. Uh, COVID did not do the classical music world any good. Right. Uh, Because orchestras, chamber musicians, all sorts of people just couldn't do what they do naturally, which is perform for others. Mm -hmm. It really took its toll. And that was already from a situation that was already not in the best of shape. Which is to say, I think for the last number of years, the classical music world has been trying to figure out who it is and what its relevance is to uh, the population in which we all live, to our communities. Yeah, I was wondering if that, if your point of view on that ties into your other organization. It does. The Center for American Culture and Ideas is about just what it sounds like. Uh, We're American, we're trying to figure out who we are as Americans, what we need to do for American culture. So the question is, what kind of culture do we have or do we want? Mm-hmm. And um, part of that, like you've described me as a modern composer. Yeah, I am. I'm a, I'm a guy. I'm still alive. So that's a good thing. So it means I'm modern. I'm contemporary. Mm-hmm. Um, but, but I write music that I hope will have, dare I say it, lasting value. I mean, that's really the difference between classical music and popular music. Popular music, by definition, is something that's popular for the time and then usually fades, right? Yeah. Except for, except for a few things that might remain. And the classical music, we guys and gals who, who write this kind of stuff, we're a little pretentious, mm-hmm. you know, but that's just part of being an artist. Right. Uh, but I guess what I mean by that is we're we're hoping that the things we write are going to be loved by our people who hear them today. Some of the music we write will stick around. People will say it has some kind of, again, dare I say it, elevating quality, mm-hmm. something about it that you can come back to on repeated hearings and hear even more each time. Mm-hmm. That's why some of the great classics of Bach and Mozart and Beethoven and Stravinsky and Liszt and Tchaikovsky can get played over and over without people getting really bored because they're that good and they have that much in them. Exactly. You mentioned a minute or two ago that we got hit hard with COVID, especially because we didn't quite know what our thing was. What kind of environment or community do you think the classical music world is moving towards? Are they moving towards one at all? Well, their first half was to get back up and running. Yeah. 
right? That's the first thing is to, you know, for orchestras is to start rehearsing again and getting people willing to come back into a, into a building and hear the music. Um, again, for better or worse, I mean, here's our problem. Classical music really is, I think, I might be, this might be an idiosyncratic or purely my, my notion, but I don't think so. Um, it's really based on people getting together and experiencing something together. Yeah. In other words, it's not too far-fetched to say that for that time that you're in an audience listening to an orchestra, you're part of a community that's experiencing the same thing mm -hmm. and hearing the same thing. And preferably and hopefully in a place, in a space where you can oh cease to think about the simpler things in life you, you don't worry about washing your clothes you don't have to worry about getting dinner you're just listening to music that hopefully elevates your spirit yeah that's what music is supposed to do i don't think classical music will ever die i think it might have a smaller audience only because there are so many things that take our attention away. Yeah, you know, I was just thinking about attention span, especially well, that, working in radio. We know all about it. <laughs> you know the issue. I mean, it's a real problem for a composer now. For an American composer, if you want to stretch out, as it were, and let's say write a symphony that's 30 minutes long, you know, like a Beethoven symphony mm -hmm. or an opera, you know, you really can't get away writing a four-hour opera like Wagner did. I mean, nobody <laughs> will produce it. It's just impossible, <laughs> right? Yeah, it is. So we're more, we're more on the time frame of, at best, the movie. And it may be a show on TV or on Netflix that's 45 minutes long without commercials. Generally, we're talking about five minutes max. Yeah. Right? So it's complex because classical composers usually like to build a journey of some sort yeah exactly. that's what we do we build journeys they have beginnings middle and ends like the way we're born and live and then die right have you felt anything at anything major change over the last couple of years or have you kind of remained the same it's a great question i've kind of remained the same mm -hmm. composers we're just used to spending hours and hours and hours in a room by ourselves trying to write music. For composers, I'm not sure uh, COVID, uh, the pandemic, affected us as much as others. We could right. pretty much go about our business. I mean, we didn't have commission. You know, people were not commissioning because there was no money and there were no performances to be at. And we can do it really pretty well. <laughs> yeah. It's not the same as sitting someplace and having a cup of coffee. Yeah, it's not. I It relates a lot to online dating these days. And I just feel like, you know, if I, it's not a, well, there's something missing when you're in somebody's atmosphere. And yeah, sometimes, yeah. sometimes it's, you, part, it's called body language. Yeah. And we have that expression because not everything is said with our voices. Uh -huh. A lot of things, as I'm gesticulating now, you know, it's a lot about our bodies and how we move and how we respond. And that's that's who we are as human beings, where we have brains and bodies in this whole, it's a pretty, uh, pretty amazing and extensive apparatus, but we're used to socializing and being with each other actually in person. Yeah, humans are humans are made to do that. Yeah, we are. That's that's how we are made. You bet you bet we are. I actually wanted to talk about one of the pieces that's going to be performed, Why Jacob? Yeah. And I wanted to go back since you're celebrating a milestone here. 
can you tell us about the premiere of it, like the world premiere? Yeah, so Why Jacob has taken numerous forms. Okay. Its first form, in this case it means an orchestration of sorts, was for choir and uh, piano. Mm -hmm. And I wrote it, golly, in 1979. It was a commission right. from the high school that I attended in Seattle called the Lakeside School. So you went to high school there and premiered your first had your world premiere of this piece, it wasn't your first piece. Right. My teacher, Peter Sieber, who's just a wonderful man and wonderful musician, uh, Lakeside built a new hall. So he thought, well, how cool is it would, it would be to commission a composer who studied here at the Lakeside School? I mean, I can assure you, I'm the only professional composer in the school's history. They were kind enough to give me an alumni of the year award, which the previous year had gone to Bill Gates. And I oh, thought, wow. that's pretty cool. That's really I like cool. being in the same company with Bill. Yeah, he was in the class behind me. And Paul Allen, who was the other founder of Microsoft, uh, was in my class. So, so oh, cool. uh, I thought that was pretty nice. Anyway, so Peter uh, commissioned me to write this piece to um, celebrate the, the opening of a new hall. Uh, and I'm, I'm blanking, uh, St. Nicholas Hall. And it was a new performing arts hall. And I thought to myself, gee, I could write, you know, a quick celebratory piece and, you know, bim, bam, boom, bam, and that'll be that. And then I thought maybe it would be better to write a piece that's in honor of those people who who weren't there, who couldn't be there. So that's a slightly more introspective assignment that I gave myself. So Jacob, it's based on, and Jacob Raymond was a friend of mine in, in my adolescence, and he might have gone to Lakeside had he stayed in Seattle, but he and his family moved to Israel in the um, mid-60s, I think. And he was the, one of the first soldiers to be killed in the 1973 October uh, Arab-Israeli War. Mm. So I thought I would write a piece in memory of him. Mm. And as you mentioned, yeah, I've written a lot of music that is based on Jewish texts or um, also on, on texts by my buddy Paul Pines, who's also a New York Jewish poet. And um, so I wrote this piece that was um, more introspective. So and it has some texts about what things that happened in Seattle, but it also reflects on the conjunction, the the almost the, the deep similarity between the word Jacob, which in Hebrew is Yaakov, the Jewish word for God, which is Yahweh. Oh. So Yaakov and Yahweh. So it intertwined the syllables from that. And it's kind of oh. a, it's an early piece of mine and it's been pretty successful. People really like it. It's interesting. It's also kind of nostalgic. There's a nice tune in it that keeps coming back. And then it's interrupted by other more, let's just say, galactic, star-like music. <laughs> and, yeah. and then finally, the tune just has its way, and it presents itself for a, a lengthy part of the piece. Mm -hmm. And it comes back at the very, very end, repeating a phrase over and over again, getting slower and slower, as if it's a music box. And you know how a music box loses energy at the end and it kind of... Yeah. Oh. Who are some of your first influences, vocal or instrumental? 
You mean what people affected me the most as a young student or composer? <laughs> yeah. Is that what you mean? Yeah. Well, okay, so we've already made the case that I, I grew up in Seattle. Uh-huh. And my teacher in high school was incredibly formative. Mm-hmm. I started playing the trombone when I was about nine. Okay. And that was because I went in and said I wanted to play the clarinet. And the music teacher said, well, you have two teeth that protrude in the front. And that'd be hard for <laughs> you to get armor through. Would you like to play trombone? And I said, okay. So, and anyway, I ended up being pretty good at trombone. And I worked really hard at it. And I had wonderful teachers all along the way. And then Peter was incredibly influential in high school. He was into the into old music, which then was a new phenomenon. So uh, I picked up the recorder family so I could play old music because old music was written for recorders, not flutes. And I learned the trumpet so I could double. And then we had a brass choir at Lakeside. And when I had to get braces to correct those two front teeth, Peter let me conduct the brass choir. Oh, cool. Yeah, and he picked up his trumpet again and played. So oh, that's nice. when I really got to see scores and how the whole thing is put together. Yeah, you also studied with Gunther Schuller, who a lot of our audience would recognize. Would they? Yeah, I studied with Gunther at Tanglewood. Oh, you know, okay, I, cool. I went from, from Hampshire College, where I was an undergrad, and studied with wonderful people there and at Smith College in Amherst. And then I went to Yale and studied with a guy named Jacob Druckmann there. And then went into New York. And right after that, uh, after Yale, I went up to um, Tanglewood and I studied with Gunther. You know, Beethoven studied a little bit with Haydn. Mozart, maybe an exception, you know, studied with his dad, um, Mm -hmm. but studied Bach also. So you have to just study and have good teachers. It's really important. How else are, especially as an educator and with your organization, part of the the narrative or are you trying to expand in any new ways in regards to music education? Uh, That's interesting. So we started off in in the university and uh, one of the things that started worrying me about 12 or 13 years ago when we started CACI, the Center for American Culture and Ideas, was the lack of good education that students had when they came into the university. Right. And also the lack of breadth of knowledge. Uh huh. So how do you get it? Well, here here were the problems. Let, let me just set out for you. Let's say I'm I'm talking just to my students who are composers, mm-hmm. and I want to talk to them about John Cage mm-hmm. or Earl Brown or uh, Christian Wolf or these guys who were around New York in the fifties called the New York School. Okay, so one or two of them might have heard of Cage. They might have heard of Earl Brown. That's great. So I'm, I'm teaching them the music, but. If I want to allude to something in art and I want to say, well, you know, Jackson Pollock was on the scene then, you know, Barnett Newman was on the scene and, you know, all these guys doing abstract expressionism. And 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 my students look at me and clearly they're saying, what the hell are you talking about? I, I, I've never heard of these guys, right? Oh, so you realize yeah. you have to teach a whole cultural content. Mm-hmm. In, the, in the present university environment, we have a problem. If a student takes a general education course in music, they'll never take one in art and they'll never take one in dance because they've already fulfilled the requirement and they're young. They don't know any better. Yeah. Right. right. So we created a, a course called Human Achievement and Innovation in the Arts. And it's sort of going back to the future. What I mean by that is it's going back to the past and saying, let's do a course that incorporates a number of different things and has a couple, a couple of different teachers. 
So we teach the entire history of music, the entire history of art, the entire history of dance. It's all predicated on learning a little bit about the philosophy of beauty. Ooh. So what do I mean by that? Well, you know, philosophers have been talking about aesthetics for at least three, no, a couple thousand years, you know, really since the time of Plato, trying to figure out, well, what's beautiful? How, how do you know it's beautiful? Yeah. What's the difference? You know, if some, if some student comes up to me and says, hey, you know, I love Lady Gaga and, and Madonna, and you love Beethoven. What's what's the problem? You know, why can't we just leave it at that? Why can't I learn this Beethoven guy? Uh-huh. Okay, so you have you have to make the case now. Yeah. You have to state the case why some things you should know about and have heard or listened to or seen just because it's been identified by human beings for so long mm. as something really great. You're talking kind of about going back to basically just telling people like this is what humans have identified as this this and this yeah and that it's been around for so long that really resonates um so what about people who try to say that Bach or he's not as significant today and sometimes it comes from my perspective of like what we play on the radio you shouldn't play Bach you know Handel had this political history so you shouldn't play Handel Uh, uh uh-huh blah 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 yes so (laughs) so what you're talking about is where we find ourselves now in woke culture Right. Uh, and and woke, woke culture is a is a major problem for me. So since it's the predominant culture now, you could say that yet again, as I was in my 20s and 30s, I'm countercultural. Because <laughs> then I wanted to expand the culture into things more revolutionary and mm-hmm. into things that had never been tried. And then I discovered yeah. as a composer that, well, that's nice, but you need to also know where you come from. You need to connect to the past. You need yeah. to make this, you are part of the lineage. You stand on other people's shoulders. Uh-huh. So in terms of woke politics, which has definitely infected the music biz a great deal, we argue against that quite simply for a simple reason. Do I, Have I ever discriminated against any composer? Absolutely not. Mm-hmm. I only discriminate in one way. Uh-huh. And that is I make judgments about quality, whether something's good or not good. And that's another reason, by the way, that I think the music community and perhaps the larger art community is shooting itself in the foot because I don't think that politics and art mix very well. They just don't. They are two different spheres. So if major orchestras start playing music by people because of their particular characteristics, but the music isn't good, Uh that doesn't help anybody in my estimation. But I'm a minority in that, so we should acknowledge it. So can we talk a little bit about the other music that's featured on the September 9th performance? Yes, thank you for, for coming to that. Our audience who comes, and I hope lots of people come because it's just going to be a wonderful concert. Uh, they're going to hear a new piece by a colleague of mine named Joshua Nichols. Mm-hmm. And Joshua is a former student of mine. And um, he got his doctorate with me. And then I thought he was so good. I hired him to work with the Center for American Pulpit Ideas. And we're, I can assure you, the only think tank in the country where a member's portfolio includes, you will write music. So part of his day, he's supposed to make sure he writes music, oh, wow. as well as doing podcasts for us and writing a book. 
but write music because your music is really good and people uh, need to hear it. He just brought a CD out called Metropolis on the Summit Record label, which is actually based right in Phoenix. Well, nobody buys CDs anymore. Go to Spotify or Apple, whatever, <laughs> and click on Metropolis and they can hear this piece that's going to be played before um, before the concert. Um, it's just wonderful. It's on a theme by a Russian composer who was uh, killed by the by the incoming communist because he was religious. Anyway, so it's and it's a wonderful piece. And then the final composer, this intersects with a couple of things that we talked about, and that's the piano sonata by Aaron Copeland. Yeah. So here's a nice Jewish boy from Brooklyn. Yeah. Who became the American composer, right? He represents America's sound. Yes. Um, um, who also was a homosexual. So, okay, you know, he's Jewish, he's gay, and guess what? We love him. All of, and this is a wonderful piece that uh, people don't, will not know. People know Fanfare for the Common Man, and they know Appalachians. And, and the Hoedown. And Hoedown, and, and uh, 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 that's yeah. right. Dan Linder is playing his piano sonata relatively new to our faculty here at the University of Arizona. She's what I call one of our young lions, an extraordinary pianist. There's nothing better than when you have really good music played by a really good performer. It's a nice combination, let me tell you. <laughs> Isn't so it? So that's what people will hear when they go to the concert. That's composer and professor of music at the U of A, Daniel Asia, who will be performing with the Red Rocks Music Festival September 9th at the Paradise Valley United Methodist Church in Paradise Valley. The show begins at 7.30 p.m. Tickets and more info at redrocksmusicfestival.com. For KBOX Heart of the Arts, I'm Melissa Green.